generally speaking, people don't like to obey the rules. People don't like to be told what to do. And in fact, sometimes people, uh, when they're told what to do, do exactly the opposite. Uh, there's an anecdote, I don't know if it's true, but it seems believable, where there was this uh, seaside hotel that was built uh, right up onto the, the, the coast. So the, the water, the waves are just outside the windows. And signs were put up, if somebody had this idea, they put up signs in every hotel room that said, no fishing from the window. Well, sure enough, people did that. So I, I don't know if that actually happened, but you can, you can believe that. Somebody just said, well, first of all, I never thought about fishing from the window. And second of all, you can't tell me what to do, so I'm going to do it. There's that hardwired uh, desire to disobey in us. And, you know, and it seems like, if, if you look back over history, it seems like the, the last 50 or 60 years have been marked more and more by this attitude of rebellion towards authority and uh, this, this, well, I'm not going to obey the rules. You can't tell me what to do. You know, the, the previous generation had all these rules and ways of doing things. Well, my generation is going to be different. We're going to go against, you know, buck tradition and do whatever we want to do. Well, that, that atmosphere, um, you know, sometimes it, it, it can lead to okay things. I mean, think about it with, with music. There, there's always something new and creative because somebody is, you know, breaking the conventional rules and, and it, you know, neat things can happen. But it doesn't always work so well, you know, let, let's say if you're the member of a professional orchestra and you decide that the notes written on the page, I don't have to obey those rules. I can calculate my own thing. And you do, and you lose your job as a member of the orchestra. Or a member of a football team, you know, the play is set a certain way, and he repeatedly decides, you know, I don't really, the wide receiver, I don't really like this route, I'm, I'm going to run it a different way. Well, and then suddenly he finds himself on the bench. Or maybe with more tragic circumstances, if a pilot decides that, you know, uh, down is actually up and up is actually down, well, that's, that's a terrifying prospect. He's not going to be in his job very long either. Breaking, breaking the rules, you know, it, it, it feels good. It seems like the right thing to do sometimes. But more often than not, it leads to tragic consequences. It's interesting that within us we have this kind of uh, competition. We, we have this innate sense that there's right and wrong. And we also have this drive to go against something that we you know, don't like or we think is wrong. And so we end up being conflicted within ourselves. What we find in the Bible is that God made us to obey him. And that God designed the world in such a way, he designed the universe in such a way that when we obey him, we're, as it were, we're kind of moving with the flow of the universe. You know, using the machine the way it was designed to be used. But when we disobey, just as our first parents, Adam and Eve, did, when we disobey, we're suddenly going against the flow. And going upstream is the hardest thing to do. Breaking the rules versus learning the blessings and joy of obedience. That is the focus of our message today in Ezra chapter 3. If you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to to turn in your copy of God's Word to Ezra chapter 3. Like I said last week, if you have no idea where that is, that's what that table of contents is for. It's fine. Just right there in the beginning of your Bible, or if you're using a pew Bible, you know, 
just find the page number, turn to it. If you're using your, your uh, Bible app, well, you don't have to know where it is. Just find Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. Last week we saw this incredible gift of God's grace, almost a, a second exodus, as the people of God were brought out of captivity in Babylon and brought to Jerusalem, uh, brought back to the land of promise. And we saw the, the, the power of God, the sovereignty of God, his providence, so the people learning to trust God. Today, in chapter 3, we find this process of rebuilding. The rebuilding of what God had planned for his people. And we see, we're going to find that it comes with, or what re- what's required to rebuild is obedience. Obedience to God, to his word. And obedience uh, with, with a heart that wants to obey and with the expectation that God knows what he's doing. And so when he tells us to do something, obeying it exactly the way he tells us to do it is wisdom. And disobeying it is foolishness. Like I said, though, we have that in us. We have this this drive to go against obedience. We are, more often than not, we, we think there are loopholes with God's word. We think we can find ways around doing things exactly the way he calls us to do them. In the process, what happens is we miss out on the joy and the blessing of obedience. So that's my hope for us this morning as we study Ezra 3, that, that you'll be convinced of the joy, the blessing of obedience, of going with the flow of the universe instead of trying to swim upstream. And I pray that this uh, this unique book, this, this unique place in the history of redemption will help us to see that, the joy and blessing of obedience. So how do we learn the joy and blessing of obedience? First of all, you must obey God supremely. So if you're taking notes, that's the first point you can write down. Obey God supremely. This is in verses 1 through 5, and you can follow along as I read that. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though... They feared the surrounding peoples. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as well as the free will offerings brought to the Lord. So here in chapter 3, we find the, the people... Like we saw at the, in the very last verse of chapter 2, they had settled in their towns. So the, the people who had been in Babylon for decades, these are the children and grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren of the last people who had lived in the land. And they come back, and apparently they knew exactly where to go. It said they settled in their towns. And verse 1 of chapter 3 says they were in their towns. And you know, think about it. This is their first time back. To the promised land. For many of these people, it's the first time they've ever been there. While they were in Babylon, they were told the stories. They were uh, 
taught the scriptures, Genesis through Deuteronomy and, and, and maybe some of the prophets and other, other books. They were taught that by their parents and grandparents, and they heard about God's promises, but there they were in Babylon. And then suddenly they saw the fulfillment of God's promises and the, the opportunity to go back to the land of promise, and they show up there, and they get in their towns, and, and you, know, you can imagine, just put yourself in their shoes, what kind of things would you start doing? Well, you're starting from scratch in many ways. You probably have to build your house. You probably have to start from scratch with planting crops and acquiring cattle or maybe uh, you know, increasing the cattle that you, you already have. You would be working on security. You know, you want your town to be safe. You'd be thinking a lot about just getting into a good routine, right? Uh, as my wife and I were chatting about this, we were trying to imagine having you know, young children in that situation, and just, you know, how important routine is. Not to mention uh, all the cost that was involved in just getting back to the land. You know, the months that it took to get there. 500 miles they traveled on foot. And so they get in their homes, right? And then what do they do? Verse 1 tells us, they gathered as one in Jerusalem. How long were they there? We don't know exactly, but for some length of time, they left their towns. You know, they piled all the kids in the minivan, I mean the minivagon, or whatever it is. And they go to Jerusalem. Why? Out of obedience. Out of obedience. First, just the, the first bit of obedience is this gathering um, in Exodus 23, 17, it says three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God. So this is the seventh month. This means the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This means the Festival of Shelters. And so they see what God's word says and they obey because they see that God must be obeyed supremely. He alone, he made us to obey him. And because they knew God had revealed what he prescribed for worship at, at that point in time. This is the Old Covenant. They knew what he'd revealed. They understood it, and so they did it. They gather as one man. They, they, uh, they begin to work on the altar. Uh, verse 2 says, uh, th- these guys, they, they began to build the altar of Israel's God. And notice, in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. Exodus 27, verse 1, you are to construct the altar. And then the rest of the chapter, Exodus 27, explains all the details. God must be obeyed supremely, and so they get busy doing that. And and then they get uh, get busy with the sacrifices. Verses uh, 3 through 5 outline all these different kinds. The regular burnt offerings, the new moon burnt offerings, holy occasion burnt offerings, free will, voluntary offerings. All of them according to the law of Moses, God's revealed word to them. They obey. So keeping in mind, this is old covenant worship. You know, if you, if you think about it like, like a tent, you know, we, we live, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian this morning, we live in a new covenant tent. This is the old covenant tent. It, it's, a, it's, it's different. It has distinct aspects to it. So these are old covenant prescriptions for worship, but there's still 
They're, they're clearly revealed, and so the people obey. And so I want us to think for a second then about the significance of this, because what this reveals, it, well, this, this reveals a lot, and then therefore a lot for us to learn from it. For one thing, it reveals the, the call to just do it, just obey. What, why do they obey? Because they know that's the right thing to do. I mean, think about their whole lives, they have been living with the consequences of the disobedience of their ancestors. Every day in Babylon, where they could not come to the altar, they could not come to Jerusalem, they could not bring the sacrifices, every day was a reminder of the cost of disobedience. So they were, they were humbled, they were chastened, and so when they show up, you just see this resolve, we are just going to obey God. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you know, I, I would just point to this fact. God made you, and because he made you, he has the right to require your obedience. You were made to obey God supremely above, above all things. And your disobedience to him is not, a, it's not simply because you're just not doing your religion right. It's, it's a failure to do what you were made to do. It's not the only thing you were made to do. You were made to love God and enjoy God and be blessed by God too, but you were made to obey him. And, and also, I, I, just, I see in this just the fact that they just obey. Uh, if parents, if you're a parent this morning, you have young children you know, still learning uh, to obey. This is a reminder to us. Um, we need to teach our children just the simple fact of obedience. Uh, you know, we, there aren't a lot of, of specific verses in the Bible about parenting, but one of them is, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And here's the thing, though. P- parents, as, as we do this, and, and grandparents, as you maybe uh, help in the process, as we teach children just simple obedience, we're giving them, we're preparing them for this the ultimate obedience they owe to God. And then, therefore, to see their inability to obey God and their need for grace, their need for the gospel. So, parents, let's, let's, te- let's be diligent. Let's, let's crack down on this. Teach our children to obey. Just like we see the Israelites doing here. Or another significant aspect of it, though, is, uh, is the unity that comes with this. Again, think about it. They're, they're scattered throughout in their towns. Probably kind of small family groups in different places. You know, don't, don't think like, bustling towns and cities, right? You know, they're, they're starting over. So in, in their kind of small family clan groups, it'd be really easy for them to be, uh, you know, isolated from each other and to uh, uh, you know, forget the connectedness they have with these other people. And so that's why verse 1, I love that phrase, that they gathered as one, or literally, they gathered as one man. You know, one, that, that, they're that unified. Just a, a picture to us. You know, this is this, one of the reasons why as a Christian, the, the reason you should come to church is as a picture of the unity that you have with your brothers and sisters. Third thing we see is that, that this reflects a gratitude for God's goodness and provision. I mean, you've got to remember, whenever you read about animal sacrifices, you've got to remember how costly that is. That is costly. So they look at the animals that God's provided them, but they, they indicate their trust in God and their gratitude to him by sacrificing the best of those animals. 
that also then leads to uh, the, the implicit recognition of their need for God's mercy. Right? Because verses 1 through 5, you know, over and over again, it's about the altar and the sacrifices. What were those for? Those were to teach them that they, too, were sinners. They could not expect in and of themselves to just be better than their ancestors. No, they had to have the humility to recognize that they are sinners, that they need to come to God and his provision for forgiveness. Under the old covenant, that provision was symbolized by the sacrifice of animals. But as Hebrews 10 tells us, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were not to see the animals as what earned their forgiveness. They were to sacrifice those animals, trusting God that he would provide a way of forgiveness. And the New Testament shows us that that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of these sacrifices. We learn from them that posture of recognition of our need for mercy. You know, you, you could you, talk, talk to your spouse later today, you know, Think, think about your, your family and all your needs and, and, and say, to, say to each other, what do we need most? You know what we need? Mercy. We need mercy from God. That's, that's fundamental and more important than anything. I mean, why, for them to leave behind their homes and farms and cattle and everything for this time to offer sacrifices, they recognize their need for the mercy and deliverance and salvation of God. We should learn from that. One more thing I want to see about trusting God here or, or obeying God supremely. There's this one little phrase that I just couldn't get all week long as I looked at this passage. It was like it just kept shining brighter and brighter and brighter. Maybe you saw it. But it's in verse 3. They set up the altar. They offer burnt offerings. Even though they feared the surrounding peoples. They feared those who maybe were descendants of other people of other religions, people of other ethnic groups who, uh, who had other gods. So it wasn't the ethnicity. It wasn't, it's not a race issue. It was a worship issue. They feared those who worshipped other gods who would not be very happy that these people had come back to Jerusalem and set up an altar to the one true and living God. So they, the, the people uh, who would return were fearful of them. They didn't know what they were going to do, but they obeyed anyway. They obeyed God supremely, even though they were afraid. That's, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a, a reminder to us. To, that it, it's, it's normal, if you're a Christian, it's normal for Christians to obey. And that there are always going to be things that we fear, things that will prevent us, that will you know, make us be tempted not to obey. But if you're a Christian, and you don't have a regular habit of obeying God, then, then something is off. You're missing something. It's normal for Christians to obey God as his word reveals. And, you know, and that's part of what the church is for. You know, it's one of the reasons why I would exhort us and encourage us after, after church, especially on Sunday morning, to hang around for a little while and talk to each other and encourage each other 
we are each other's best cheerleaders on the path of obedience. You know, nobody in the world is going to cheer you on to obey God. But, but brothers and sisters, as a church, we can help each other. We need each other to help on this path of obedience. God is worthy and trustworthy of our obedience. We are made to obey him supremely. The second way that we need to learn obedience here is to obey God precisely. Obey God precisely. This comes from verses 6 through 9. On the first day of the seventh month, verse 6, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea, according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia. In the second month of the second year, so this is about six or seven months later, uh, after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old or more, to supervise the work of the Lord's house. Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah and of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. So in verse 6, we see the writer uh, kind of indicating a turning point for us because he says, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid, he's pointing out that the temple's not built. The temple hasn't been uh, rebuilt according to God's word, and that's a big deal. And so this indicates a, a, a turning point, a shift of focus to the temple and the building of the temple. The, the people recognize what's, what it's going to take. Uh, it tells us in verse 7 that they gave money, they gave food, drink, and oil, and they went, you know, needed to get cedar wood from Lebanon to, uh, uh, to, to build it. So, you know, this is a picture of generous, lavish giving uh, in order to uh, obey God's word when it comes to the temple. Certainly a, a picture to us. Now, now, the application here is not uh, necessarily giving generously to, to a building project. Um, so, the, you know, temple and church building, not the same. And in fact, if we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, and that the church, the, the people of God, are the new temple of God, as we find in First in Peter, well then this generous giving has to do with the increasing of the kingdom of God. So, so the, the generous giving, this is a, a picture to us of why we should give generously to the work of ministry, to the advance of the gospel, to international missions and, uh, and, and other things that advance the kingdom of God. Uh, they give generously, they give sacrificially towards this work. And you know, there, there's something here though that would be really easy for us to miss. And I never, I totally missed this. Uh, but that, that's why I thank, I thank God that there are uh, commentaries and scholars who have uh, dug deeper than, uh, than I have. And they, they, they point something out. In verse 7, there's this phrase that they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea. What this phrase is indicating is a, a, both a pointing backwards and a pointing forwards. 
It points backwards. Listen, this is specifically from 2 Chronicles 2, where during the days of Solomon, 500 years before this, 2 Chronicles 2.16, the king of Tyre says, we will cut logs from Lebanon, as many as you need, and bring them to you as rafts by sea to Joppa. You can then take them up to Jerusalem. In other words, this is a pattern. Just as in the building of the first temple under Solomon, now in this rebuilding, they're following in that same pattern as their ancestors. And they're seeking to obey God. They're following it with precision, down to the detail, down to getting cedars from Lebanon by Joppa. So it's pointing backwards, uh, 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 reaching backwards and linking hands with the, the, their forebears in the faith. But the scene also points forward. See, there's a verse in Isaiah 60, verse 13. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. It's pine, elm, and cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify my dwelling place. In other words, that there's an indication here that they expect God to do something great, even greater than what they're seeing take place right then. And when you connect the dots throughout the whole Bible, ultimately this is pointing to the new Jerusalem, the the new heavens, the new earth that will come when Christ returns. Uh, Listen to Revelation 21, verse 22, where John says, I did not see a temple in it in the new Jerusalem because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So this points us forward to a, a, a day when the, the presence of God is such that there's not even a need for a, a, a symbolic or physical reminder because the presence of God will be so near to us who trust in Christ that, that uh, there's no need for a temple. God is there. He's present with us in that new heavens and new earth that we look towards. So all of this is taking place in fulfillment of God's promises, even as it points forward at that point in time to greater promises. Verse 8 tells us that uh, the building began, the building process under Zerubbabel and Jeshua, which I should point out to you, these are uh, descent, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. This is the, the line of David. This is the kingly role. And then Jeshua a descendant of Aaron. This is the priestly role. So here you have this rebuilding of the people of God taking place under the leadership of a priest and a king. Later on, we'll find that the the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were involved in exhorting the people to build. And so you see prophet, priest, and king, all of which are fulfilled in Jesus, who now is at work building his kingdom. They set to work building the temple, the house of God, as it's called, they began to build. And then we, we see that they appoint Levites. They, they, they appoint them to supervise. Uh, it says super, supervise in verse 8, supervise in verse 9. What's up, what's up with all the supervision? Well, think about it. They've already resolved to obey God supremely. They want to obey his word, but they also want to obey God precisely. So the supervision isn't so much, you know, the, the guy walking around going, hey, get back to work, you lazy bums. Um, I mean, maybe it, it is some of that. But the supervision more has to do with rebuilding a 
according to what God's word says. Rebuilding according to God's standards. Precise dimensions of the temple and in the altar and the holy of holies and all these things. We see this attitude to obey God precisely. So what do we take from this? Once again, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Uh, not only are you called to obey God supremely, but, but God gets specific. Now, the Bible is the revelation of what God requires. If we want to know what God requires precisely, we have to go to his word. But Romans 1 also tells us that we each have a conscience, that we have this inner sense of right and wrong. And what the Bible tells us is that that is from God. So again, if you're not a Christian this morning and, and you don't really have this desire to obey God, well, not only are you called to obey God supremely, but you're called to obey him precisely. Ultimately, to obey God by looking to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in faith. That's, that's the first act of obedience he would call you to. Repent of your sins and believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. That act of obedience, that act of faith, opens you up into a, a world of hope and joy in Christ. Second thing, though, to think about with this precision, though, is to praise God that Jesus obeyed precisely. Galatians 4 tells us that he was born under the law, which means both in the sense of under the time period when the law was in place, but also it has this sense of born under the law uh, and therefore required to obey it. And we find over and over again the New Testament telling us that he did obey it. He obeyed it in every detail. He says in John's Gospel, as we saw weeks ago, that I always do what I see my Father doing. Or think about Jesus and the temptation with Satan, whether in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. You can read about that. Jesus obeyed God precisely, even in the face of temptation. So if you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, you are trusting in the one who obeyed God down to the, the, the smallest detail of precision. That's why you, when his righteous, his righteous law-keeping, his, his record of righteous law-keeping is placed onto you when you trust in Jesus, so that when God looks at you, he sees one who uh, the, you, the law has been kept perfectly in your place. He doesn't look at you as one who has insufficiently kept the law because you've trusted in Jesus to have kept it for you. At the same time, though, we also are reminded here that we are expected to obey God's word. Now, there's a lot to be said. Each, each portion of Scripture has to be understood in light of the, the time period that it was revealed, whether we're talking about Old Covenant Scriptures, New Covenant Scriptures. There, the the, the depth of nuance that's required, I can't cover that in just a couple of minutes here. But let me just encourage you with this. If you open up your Bible and start to read, and if your, your basic posture is, I want to obey God. I want to obey God precisely as he's revealed. And I think you'll begin to find, even if you're, you're reading something about uh, in, in Leviticus or Deuteronomy that you don't quite understand, I think you'll find there truths to obey. The, the, all of Scripture has something to teach us about obeying God. 
Or if you want to make it simple, start with the book of James. Read through the book of James this week and just read every verse with a desire, Lord, I want to obey you. You you have saved me and I love you. I want to obey you. Show me how to obey you. The book of James is a great place to start. One more thing I want us to think about, though, from this idea of obeying God precisely. Because uh, when we think about our life together as a church, we should assume that the scriptures are sufficient for how we conduct our life together. So I'm not going to unpack this at length, but um, let let me just talk specifically about the the role of the pastor. Um, You'll recall, if you've read through the New Testament, that the, the pastor isn't always called pastor. Sometimes he's called overseer. Sometimes he's called elder. Well, all those different names refer to the same kind of person, the person who is set apart to preach and teach God's word, whether publicly or one-to-one, and to shepherd the flock of God with, with character and integrity under the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, what I want to point out, and just thinking about as a church, obeying God's word with precision, is that when, when you read about elders in the New Testament, pastors, it's almost always in the plural. In other words, it's normal for a church to have, according to the New Testament, Uh, men who are gifted by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be shepherds. But not necessarily that all of them are financially compensated to do that. In other words, and my understanding of what the New Testament says, there are men out here this morning gifted by God to be pastors in this congregation, elders. And so I I know I'm kind of opening that up for the first time and beginning to talk about that, but that's something that's clearly revealed in the New Testament. If you'd like to talk about that more with me, uh, please feel free to call me, come see me, email me. But I I exhort us as a church to, you know, the way we set up our life together as a church, constitution and bylaws, we want that to not just come from good ideas that we have, but we want that to conform to the scriptures, don't we? I mean, there are going to be issues that the scripture doesn't address specifically, so we need wisdom. But if we're leaving out things that the New Testament does tell us to do, well, We're called to obey God precisely. We need need to look into that and pray for for God's help as we do that. One more thing I want us to think about. Obey God emotionally. We've seen this truth to obey God supremely. Secondly, to obey God precisely. And thirdly, to obey God emotionally. Look at verses 10 through 13. You'll see what I mean. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets And the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. So we come to this point where they completed the foundation of the temple and they, you know, it's only the foundation, but man, with all all that these people have been through, and what it has taken them to get this far, they saw that as a big milestone. You know, we need to celebrate this. 
And so they looked to what David had said. It says that they did this in verse 10 as David, King David of Israel had instructed. Um, and so, again, that pattern of doing what had been done before, this happened after Solomon's temple was completed. And, in fact, it also happened when King Hezekiah, a couple hundred years before this, he had a kind of rededication of the temple. They did the same thing. They celebrated. And so that's what they set out to do. Notice that it says that there's both praise and thanksgiving. There's praise where you acknowledge God for who he is and what he's done. You give him the credit. But then there's also thanksgiving. A personal and corporate sense of of seeing that God has done all of this. We have not done it. And so we are thankful. Thankful for what God has done. But then what, what about this idea of the rejoicing and the weeping? This is, this is kind of curious. We'd, we would think it would be only rejoicing, only a celebration, uh, an a, a ex- emotional experience of joy because of what's now happened. But we find it, it's very clear why they weep, or at least I should say it, it, it tells us what led to their weeping. It says... It's those who saw the, who had seen the first temple. They had seen how ornate it was, all the gold. I mean, when, when Solomon built that temple, that was at the height of Israel's prosperity. Israel as it was united, all, all 12 tribes were united under Solomon at that point. There was wealth, there was prosperity, they were excited. But that temple had been destroyed, as well as the pride of the people who thought that they had been the ones who had been so special and had done all these great things. What this is, is a picture of humility, of recognizing that, that uh, we're, on the one hand, we're not, uh, we're not what we once were, and here we are, and it doesn't feel like there's much hope that we'll ever be the people of God that we once were. But here's what I think happens when we read this as New Covenant believers. If it was only the weeping, then I think we would have good reason as Christians to kind of walk around uh, always sort of cynical and depressed. Always, you know, with, with a sort of, well, I'm about to pick on cable news again like I did last week but always with kind of a cable news attitude. You know, how often does cable news tell us good things? <laughs> I didn't say, I was going to say almost never. but And it just creates this sense of there's always bad, there's always bad, there's always bad. Well, the, it, in the one sense that's true, there's, there's a lot of bad in the world, but there's also a lot of good. And then when we consider that Jesus has come and fulfilled all of the promises of God. See, the, these people, they, they were like, okay, God has only partially fulfilled his promises here. Where are the rest of the fulfillment of the promises? Well, as New Covenant believers, guys, we know that that final fulfillment has come. Jesus has come. He was what the temple pointed to. John chapter 2 uh, sh- showed us that he is the fulfillment of the temple, what the temple pictured and pointed to. And if you know Jesus, you know he is at work in this world. 
It's, in, it's an invisible work. Christianity is supernatural. We're, we're not involved in something that is always obviously tangible and visible. It's easy for us to look at our circumstances, whether it's our own life or this local church or other local churches or whatever, and just and only see the bad. But if the Holy Spirit is at work in the people of God, as the Bible says that he is, then there is always cause for rejoicing. There's always, we can always look at each other and find something to rejoice over. So here's the last thing I want to say about this. What this means is our emotions need to be aligned with God's truth. We, we We don't want our emotions to be the engine on the train. We want God's word, God's truth to be the engine with our emotions following behind. We want our emotions to align with what is true, not with what feels true. That takes reading God's word, studying it. That that requires aligning uh, our our understanding of the world. Our worldview has to be aligned with, with how God sees the world. And I think what that will, will help us to see finally is that uh, obedience is part of that whole thing. So just as I, as I conclude, just back to that picture of obedience as going with the flow of the universe. You know, God designed this, this grand, complex machine that we call the universe. He designed it a specific way to, to run a specific way. The more we obey God's word and follow him in obedience... We find we, that we'll, we'll stop uh, uh, working uphill all the time, going against the flow. We'll be going with the flow of the universe, and that's where the joy and the blessing of obedience begins. Let's pray. Lord, these truths are are spiritual truths, which means they're discerned by the Holy Spirit, which means those of us here, we need to rely on the Spirit to understand them and to believe them by faith. Lord, help us to be those who obey you. Lord, not because we think it can earn your forgiveness. Our obedience to you will not earn your forgiveness. Jesus earned our forgiveness that we need. We are the ones who now have the privilege of following in his footsteps. We've been set free by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that freedom means we can now, by the power of God, go with the flow of the universe. We don't have to be swimming upstream all the time like we would if we were still in our rebellion. God, help us to obey by your grace and for your glory and our good, our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.